Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. So here we are, halfway through 2020, and holy cow, what a doozy of a year it's been so far. And uh, feel free to insert a descriptor of your choice in place of doozy if you'd like, because I'm sure there are a few choice words you might prefer to use instead. And I know I can only speak for my own experience, but it feels like we are in a place where all of our collective attention and energy is required to address the current matters at hand. So much so that even the thought of looking forward to what the future holds feels overwhelming and unclear and exhausting. And I've been trying to remind myself that in those moments where the weight of the world feels like too much to hold and maybe you're considering quitting or giving in or silencing yourself to just try and show up in any way that you can. Show up for yourself Perhaps that means taking a break and unplugging for even a few minutes, if you're able to. Please take care of yourselves right now, whatever that may look like for you. And I want you all to know that I'm here for any and all of you, even if we've never met before. If you need somebody to talk to, I am here. Or should you have something to share on this platform, on this show, I am here. In addition to showing up for yourself, show up for others. Check in on your loved ones, on your neighbors and community members, even the ones that seem like they're doing fine. Speak up in the face of injustice. We need to show up for each other now and not just now, from now on. And lastly, show up at the polls, whether it's local elections or the national one in November, show up. This includes making sure you're registered to vote well in advance of this fall. And you can find out where you need to register by um, looking up your state's requirements online or calling or visiting, depending on your state's COVID-19 distancing guidelines, your local city hall. So with that, I appreciate you considering my thoughts. Uh, But the real reason we're here today is to get to know and learn from someone that I admire and think will bring us some hope for those future moments when we are considering what the next few days, weeks, months, and a year and beyond look like. I am joined today by Taylor Gills. She is a Canals Marine Policy Fellow with NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Sea Grant Program working on the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. Taylor, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate uh, your intro. And that's something that I know we've all been thinking about and the privilege that we have to be able to sit here and not focus on that completely, but to bring it into our conversation is, I think, really important. Thank you. Yes, I know. I, I feel like it can seem... You know, for many reasons, everything that's going on right now can seem very overwhelming and a lot for one person to try to take on. But I think it lies in realizing where you have the opportunities to influence 
your own behavior, reflect on your own behavior, and uh, communicate with the communities around you. So um, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you joining me because I think that this is um, a conversation I've been looking forward to having with you and sharing with my guests for quite a while. You know, and I also reflect on when we first connected, this was that was back in like February or March. It was when, yeah, everything was just starting to shut down, but we didn't know, you know, how long that would last or what that would, yeah. what, yeah, I couldn't have anticipated this a few months ago, a few weeks ago, anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I was getting ready to record this morning, I was like, holy moly, you know, when we were planning to schedule this conversation, we had no idea <laughs> that we would still be here and things will have spiraled so much more out of control. But, um, you know, if we can shine a, a light on a positive, some positive work that's being done, I think um, that is well worth our while. Totally agree. So before we dive into your work, I, I want to get to know you a little better. Um, will you bring me up to speed on some of your background? So things like, where are you from and what was the community like that you grew up in? So sharing a few highlights from your path that led you to where you are right now. Yeah. Um, so I grew up outside of Tucson, Arizona. So uh, everyone who I grew up with thinks it's very interesting that I ended up in an ocean and coastal sphere because I did not grow up near the ocean at all. Um, uh, I didn't even really spend that much time outside growing up. I don't really come from, I'm the odd duck in my family that uh, likes to be outside and do things, but I didn't really grow up in that kind of environment. Um, so it seems even uh, weirder where I kind of ended up now. And I still, when I'll tell my parents I'm going camping or something, they, I feel like they still have to pause and like, why do you want to do that? <laughs> you want to sleep outside? <laughs> and I really lived in a kind of homogenous suburb, but I went to a really diverse public high school that really valued science and really valued teaching you beyond the classes that you took. And so my early education about environmental issues uh, was really interwoven with my education on racial issues, environmental justice, kind of thinking about things in a holistic sense. And so that's kind of influenced my whole path up until now is I've always seen things in a pretty broad picture and I've tried to figure out how you take individual pieces and make this big picture work. Yeah. So hearing you mention that you know, maybe you didn't spend so much time outside when you were growing up, but now you have come to find yourself working in a space, you know, very much focused on protecting the natural world. And, you know, reflecting on some of the conversations I've had over the past, you know, year and a half, close to somewhere in between year and a half and two years of hosting this show is I've noticed an interesting split between people either feeling like it's almost an instinct to that they've had ever since they can remember that, you know, it's like they knew that this was their life's passion and their purpose is to get into conservation or, you know, do something good for nature, the natural world, and then others. And, you know, I think I follow in, into a hybrid of these categories, but it's 
Others, it takes more time to develop and it's a series of choices and opportunities that are presented to you. So I'm interested in hearing more about how did those values form that have led you to now be working in NOAA's office doing ocean protection work? Well, the first job that I can remember ever wanting was to be a Supreme Court justice, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> um, so I had this interest in like justice and wanting to right wrongs. And it was, I think I grew up in Arizona, like I said, and so Sandra Day O'Connor was like a huge important figure to me growing up, uh, which is a, an odd <laughs> role model for a young girl to have. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of an odd duck in my, <laughs> as I've said. Um, but then as my interest kind of in the environment grew, reading Rachel Carson and Aldo Leopold, my ideal job kind of shifted to working for the EPA. You know, I grew up not near the ocean. So the EPA was kind of what I knew of as people that protected the environment or did something for the environment. Um, but then once I got to college, I started taking internships. I was an environmental studies major that were terrestrial. And I just, I was a little bored. I didn't love them. I didn't find something that in those internships that clicked. And also while I liked my science classes, the courses where I felt like I was most challenged in college were my sociology classes, the political science classes, talking about environmental justice, food security, ocean governance, um, and I had the opportunity to study abroad with the School for Field Studies in South Caicos, in Turks and Caicos Islands, where I lived in a field station with 20 to 30 other people for four months, um, really off the grid. You know, we uh, bathed in the ocean. We washed our clothes in the ocean. It was very living with the land. And I, everything just kind of clicked. There was a course there. Um, it was taught by Dr. Ed Hind, uh, who I still consider uh, one of my formative mentors, uh, and he taught a course on marine social science and everything made sense. My kind of interests in the environment, my interests in justice and political science and policy and governance all kind of came together for me in that course so that I could protect the environment and think about it from kind of a human dimension. Um, and so it all kind of came back around and everything just ended up clicking there. And I kind of knew that, I could do something in this ocean realm. Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioning that it, it took experiencing it and having the opportunity to get out and, you know, experience somewhere new in order for those values to form. Um, because, you know, I think that was a similar situation for me. I, I grew up, I grew up all over. I, I come from a military family. And so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the ocean cause my dad was in the coast guard. Um, but for me to th frame what my career path was going to look like under an umbrella of sustainability and conservation, that took me a while to figure out what's even an option. Um, and, you know, I feel like I come from a very privileged background where I've had plenty of opportunities presented to me. And I think that really gets at um, just the importance of even talking about having the opportunity and that there are options to choose a career in conservation and then further, you know, providing those opportunities for people to get outside and be curious about the natural world and learn about how amazing it is and how important it is to protect. Yeah, I've given some talks on marine careers and things to, uh, to young people when I was in grad school. And the message that I've kind of tried to give to them based on my experiences is, 
whatever you're good at, you can do for the good of conservation. You know, if you're a finance whiz, you know, go work for a nonprofit and handle their books. You know, if you are, if you love to cook, become a chef and advocate for sustainable seafood, that there's a place for you in this world. And I think that that's a message that I will pound until, uh, until the end that yeah. making sure that we have that diversity and the passion from all realms and that it's not just if you have a biology degree or chemistry degree or environmental science degree. Yes. And I love that you mentioned that because, you know, that resonates with my own experience too. I, uh, I squarely fit in the box of people that went to college because that is what was expected of you. I think I definitely could have benefited from probably taking a couple years off and exploring what my interests were. But, you know, after switching majors a bunch of times, I eventually landed on communication and journalism because I realized that no matter what I ended up doing, everybody needs strong communicators. Um, So I think that is really sound advice to give to the listeners um, that whatever your interest is, we need all hands on deck in terms of, you know, figuring out solutions to climate change. So we need all types of skills imaginable and there is space for everybody. Exactly. So uh, we, meaning you and me and a lot of other people that are not just in a traditional conservation career, spend a lot of time talking about climate change and sustainability and you know, conservation and all the strategies that we need to implement to move toward a more climate conscious and resilient world. So I'm curious to know, in your opinion, what does success look like in achieving these goals? And I know that's a really big question um, that, you know, like none of us really have the answer (laughs) to that, or maybe some people out there do, but I certainly don't. And, um, you know, but what are some of the things that like mark success in your mind? I think that we have to get to a place where we realize that we know what we have to do in terms of climate change. You know, we know you have to divest from fossil fuels, electrify the power grid, you know, get more public transportation out there. It's the people. And that's why I love being a social scientist and why I think that it's such an interesting perspective to look at things from. It's the politics and the people that doesn't allow these things to happen. And so while we have the technology and the science, The most pressing issue and what's holding us back, I think, from achieving these goals is people being comfortable with a transformative reality. We're kind of facing that right now with COVID and with Black Black Lives Matter becoming more prominent as it needs to be. But realizing that we need a transformation and that's not a comfortable place for people to be. We're used to routines and we're used to business as usual, but business as usual won't go back to normal post-COVID. And so we should use this opportunity to think about what our new world looks like and not think about conservation or helping to fight climate change as giving up something, but as gaining a future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think it's, it's about reframing. I mean, this is, this is one heck of a time in history to be alive and you know, I, I've heard a lot of people in my own communities talking about, you know, when we go back to normal and, you know, pre-COVID days and thinking about those times. And I think the reality of it is, is that there's not 
we're not, I don't think that world exists anymore. And I think you're exactly right thinking about what does our new normal look like? And even though this is a really difficult time and stressful and tragic and heartbreaking and, you know, insert so many other descriptors for how we all feel about this time, but, you know, what are these areas for hope and how do we work what we want the future to look like into this new structure as we move forward um, after all of, you know, I don't, I don't know, after all the dust settles, if that is even going to happen. It's so hard to even think about the next, you know, hour or two, a few days, let alone what the the future looks like. There's a lot that we can't control with all of this, you know, but there's things that we can do to control. And if we, start to kind of build back better and build back brighter, we can take a bit of control over our own destiny, I think, more so again, and maybe feel a little bit more control in in the chaoticness of life. Yes, yes, there's opportunity there. And, you know, thinking about opportunity, and I, I know you touched on your career path a little bit, but I would like to circle back around to talk a little bit about, talk about your career, career a little bit more in terms of, uh, you know, what the process was like for you to get your foot in the door in the conservation mm-hmm. world. And, and I mean that in a way, so thinking about my own experience, um, you know, I, I had to take a series of internships that required me to move, you know, to a place I'd never been before, very far away from my family and was getting paid like only $150 a week. And, um, but I was only able to do that because I had a security blanket behind me that said that it was okay to do so. And I felt like I was able to go try something new. And if it didn't work out, there was something there to catch me. Um, and I think that part of what I would like to highlight on this show is how people get into this field. Um, and what that experience is like, just to show that, you know, there are winding and varied paths that we all take over the course of our lives and careers um, to get to where we are. So I would like to hear a little more about, you know, what was that first, those first experiences like getting into the conservation field? Yeah. Um, so I really focused on, I understood the place of privilege that I came from and that I could have gone and taken unpaid internships around the world and or wherever and had financial security and support. But I didn't want to do that. And so I kind of stayed uh, in areas and took advantage of local things for me, which was I went to undergrad in San Diego and so did internships there during the school year. And then over the summer, went back to Tucson and did internships there. And that's where I kind of learned. I'm actually very glad that I didn't go anywhere else because it was during those that I learned what I didn't like, which is mm-hmm. I think, just as important as learning what you do like. And I'm still learning that today, that I still don't know. I like <laughs> too many things and I'm trying to still find my path. Uh, but I think that the biggest hurdle um, for me in my particular career was getting into grad school was the hardest part. I feel like um, I didn't have anyone in my life who had gone to a thesis-based grad school program. So I had no idea how to apply, how to look around. Um, 
it was a lot of trial and error and luck that got me uh, my grad position. And after that, I worked my tail off to talk to everyone and listen even more and build relationships that I can then, I still rely on today that I knew that grad school was where I wanted to be. And so getting over that first hurdle and making that more accessible to people and having them understand you, if you want to do a thesis based thing, you need to contact professors first and here's what you need to send to them. Um, that was hard and it's not a natural thing to think about uh, because when, if you have applied to college, you know, you send off your thing and some uh, faceless, nameless person looks at it and then gives you a yes or no. But grad school is very different. It's picking a mentor and a partner. Um, mm-hmm. And in this field, the your network, which is really just relationships, it's not, especially in DC, um, you can find a lot of people who are a little more interactional with those relationships. So asking what's your job and how can you help me and how can I help you? But I try to build relationships with people above that. And then if we can help each other out, or I love passing on opportunities to people that I see that I think would fit them. And that's something that I wouldn't get if I didn't have that kind of deeper relationship connection that I see something and saying, hey, this fits you. And then the same thing happens uh, when they see something that they think fits me. So in this field, you know, we know everyone and what goes around comes around that Jenna, when you and I first talked, we realized that we had friends in common and had never yeah. met, you know? <laughs> so um, I think that relationships matter and increasing access to grad programs is, and just figuring out how to do that is so necessary because that's the hardest, that was the hardest step for me. Yes. And I agree. Um, you know, thinking about access to grad school and you know, I keep circling back to my own experience because that's all I know. And I hope that if I, you know, if I share how, you know, my, some of my challenges and successes, then hopefully like I've learned from them, maybe some of the listeners will too. And, but it's, you know, my grad program did not require the GRE to get in. Uh, I went to Virginia Tech's uh, College of Natural Resources. I got an executive master's in natural resources. Um, and, at the time, and I think I'm noticing a shift in other programs that are designed in a way that they remove the barrier of the GRE and <laughs> look at the the human and the student in a more holistic way. And if that, you know, if there was a GRE involved in me applying for that program, I don't know if I would have because I have never been a uh, great standardized test taker. And I know that, that I am not the only person out there like that. Um, so even being provided an opportunity of taking down that barrier of this massive standardized test, um, changed my life. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting to see more programs kind of shifting their education model to, um, be a little more inclusive of different learning styles. Yeah. And different backgrounds of students. So, uh, I was applying, um, my, I have a really diverse background and I've kind of taken things as I like, and I'm not a conventional marine science person that I didn't get a biology degree. I didn't do X, Y, and Z. And so I, on paper, I might not have looked like the perfect fit candidate uh, because mm-hmm. I didn't know one specific thing or have research experience in labs, but my mentor saw something in me and believed me and had to fight for me a little bit to uh, make it 
into the grad program because I wasn't who they usually picked and I brought a different perspective. And I'm thankful every day that he did. Um, But so we need those champions and people to recognize that just because you might not have gotten the best GRE score because you came from a smaller school or you didn't have the opportunity to work in a wet lab, you know, every summer um, that if you can communicate your values and what you want to learn and what you can bring to the table and your willingness to learn and listen, then I think that's, that's the most important trait of being in this field is your willingness to listen and your willingness to keep trying to get better. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the strongest things that a, a trait that a mentor can have is the eye for noticing when somebody is passionate and they're curious and when they're willing to work and they're willing to learn. And I think from there, you know, in terms of specific information, people can learn all of that. Those are things that can be taught. I think it's looking for people that are interested, um, whether they look good on paper or not, and then providing opportunities to those that, um, you know, have that willingness to learn and that eagerness to get involved. Exactly. Because that's what's going to save the world. Honestly, I think it's, it's those people who constantly question and constantly try to make the world better for themselves and for others. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Yeah. And so now I want to pivot a little bit to talk about some of your current work um, and starting with hearing a little bit more about the Knauss Fellowship and what it's all about and what kind of work it entails. Yeah. So the National Sea Grant College Program, uh, which is based in NOAA, started this Knauss Fellowship in 1979. So we've been going on uh, for a long time here. Uh, It's a pretty prestigious marine policy fellowship that allows, it's a unique educational and professional experience for grad students. So either master's, PhD, or JD. Um, 
to with an interest in ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes resources and policy to work at a really high level in the marine policy realm in DC for one year. Um, so the program matches fellows like me with host offices in either the legislative or executive branches where you're really essential to your office incredibly quickly. Um, there's a lot of offices that have fellows every year and don't know what they would do if they didn't have those fellows every year that um, we constitute a pretty big part of the workforce. And there's canals people everywhere within DC that you can't uh, spit without hitting one of us, I think. Um, so it's not only a great opportunity for this, the year that you're in DC, but it's a network of supportive people who are in federal government, who are in state government, local NGOs, kind of everywhere, inter internationally, even private industry. Um, it's a fantastic program that has really strong bipartisan support because Sea Grant is one of the best programs that I've ever come across. Uh, and I will fight for them as long as I can. But, uh, they have the national office and then Sea Grant programs in each coastal, ocean and coastal state, including Great Lakes and Guam and uh, Puerto Rico. Yeah. And so speaking of fighting for them, I want to take a little sidebar just to note for listeners that may not be as familiar with the Canals Fellowship or Sea Grant or the you know budget process um, in terms of the federal budget process. But it is a very uh, common occurrence for Sea Grant funding either to be zeroed out in recent years or, um, you know, the president's budget requests severe cuts to the program. And uh, there are a lot of groups, and mine included, that during my day job for the Healthy Oceans Coalition and American Literal Society, um, that really believe in this program so much so. I have never been a Canals Fellow. I have never been in the Sea Grant program, um, but I see the good work that you all do. So, and believe in it so much that there are organizations across the country that go in year after year and meet with our members of Congress and our federal agency leads uh, to discuss the importance of the program and to make sure that the funding remains. And I think that is something that listeners can do. You don't need to work for a nonprofit to do that. Um, if you hear about this program or see direct benefits from the program, um, you know, you have all the power to call up your member of Congress and say, hey, I really love NOAA Sea Grant program. Please make sure that it's fully funded. Um, in whatever fiscal year we are in when you do that. Um, but not to get too sidetracked, but I heard you mention that you love the program so much that you're going to continue fighting for it. And so I wanted yeah. to put a little plug in that you are not the only one who's fighting for it and nor should you be. Um, and, you know, encourage the listeners to join in on that, that support for NOAA Sea Grant. That's great. Yeah, I will be their cheerleader forever. <laughs> so how is your fellowship going so far? You know, what's been the most interesting or intriguing part of the experience for you? Or on the flip side, uh, you know, have there been some really challenging aspects of the work? And what have you learned from those challenges? Yeah, well, we uh, I started this year in February um, and then got about three or four weeks into the office before everything changed. Um, so I had, uh, about three, four weeks of actually going in to the office and now we're in full telework mode. And so like everyone else, COVID has kind of impacted everything. Um, this year 
I was supposed to have uh, a lot of travel opportunities, but it's trying to rethink, okay, what can this year look like if it's not traveling around and what other work can I do? Um, So my specific work is I'm in the formulation and congressional affairs division of NOAA Research, uh, which is one of NOAA's line offices that focuses on basic scientific research, things like ocean exploration, ocean acidification, and the National Sea Grant Program is also housed within OAR. Uh, But my specific project is working on preparing the United States for the upcoming UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, uh, which is a United Nations initiative that's bringing the world's focus onto the oceans uh, from the year 2021 to 2030. Uh, And it's been bigger and more wonderful and more challenging and caused me to grow more in these past few months than I could have ever imagined. Um, Because the decade is this really abstract concept. How do you think about something that's 10 years when we can't even think about what's a week from now or two weeks from now. Um, But I'm really trying through my position to take this concept, this goal that the decade has come up with of the ocean we want. That's what they're challenging people to get to. We need to, over this 10 years, get to the ocean, from the ocean we have to the ocean we want and make this more concrete for different groups and help them think about what is the ocean we want? You know, what does that ocean look like and what, science, policy, law, regulation, technology, do we need to get there? How do we accomplish this ideal ocean? Yeah, and so before we dive a little bit deeper into the the decade of ocean science and for sustainable development, I want to um, just circle back quickly and have you share how any of the listeners that might be interested in learning more about the Canaus Fellowship Program, um, how might they find more information about that? Yes. So the National Sea Grant website uh, will be kind of your hub for all information on Canals Fellows. It's a pretty long application process time-wise. So uh, the fellows who will be announced for next year's class will be announced in July. And they started applying uh, a year, the October previously. So you kind of have to plan ahead for this fellowship. So they'll get announced in July, but then they won't start till the next February. or all of the, every coastal Great Lakes state uh, has a Sea Grant program, so you can go look at your specific state program. But even if you're in a landlocked state, like I came from originally, um, you can apply for Canals through one of the Sea Grant programs in another state. We have some uh, people who went to uh, Utah for uh, grad school in my class this year, so uh, there is definitely still hope. And I would encourage you, uh, if anyone has any questions or wants help stepping through the canals process, feel free to reach out to me or any of the other fellows would be happy to talk more about it because we've benefited so much and we want to make sure that uh, we keep getting great, thoughtful graduate students uh, into these positions. Yeah. And and so then I'm also, you know, moving back to the UN decades, I am curious to know, and I'm not sure if you know the full story, but I imagine you know more than I do, but do you, like, will you shine a light and talk a little bit more on the history behind UN, the UN proclaiming a 
decade and, you know, how the UN ensures that it's not just a symbolic declaration or maybe it is, but from what I've learned about the ocean decade, it seems like, you know, there are goals and objectives tied to it. So there are actionable things that they plan to do. Yeah, exactly. So the idea behind proclaiming a decade, I think from the UN perspective is to bring an international focus and attention to a topic that they have this power of this giant global audience. And if the UN says, let's think about the ocean for 10 years, people are going to stop and listen more so than if I was uh, on a street corner uh, with a rolled up newspaper trying to say, hey, (laughs) listen, listen about the ocean, Um, because I'm in the ocean realm. So I forget that people don't think about it every second of every day. Uh, But the UN really has this power to bring visibility and organization behind uh, a topic or a field. And I think that this is really needed. Uh, The UN has decades all the time, uh, but oftentimes they don't get much traction or attention. And because this is an international effort, you know, no countries have to participate. Um, These decades are a coalition of the willing, and they kind of depend on the interest of countries. Mm -hmm. But uh, Craig McLean, who is not only the uh, AA of NOAA Research, uh, so he runs uh, this NOAA line office that I am in, but also an executive planning group member, which is a group of 19 individuals who have from around the world who've been chosen to kind of facilitate and plan the decade. He often says that this decade is what we make it. And that is completely true. Um, but this decade is different from other ones because we say it is. That's what makes it unique. It's because we're taking action and caring about it and trying to use it as a platform to make our oceans better. So what are some of the goals and objectives outlined in the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development? And I mean, feel free to walk through all of them, or if you don't want to, that's okay, because I'm (laughs) sure we will point people to where they can learn more about the specifics. But, you know, what are some of those overarching goals? And, you know, how did they, how did those come to be as the priorities? Yeah, so this decade is all about transformation. It's about moving from the status quo, you know, the ocean that we have, that's what the UN's phrasing is, to the ocean that we need and want. Um, So they've come up with these kind of seven broad societal goals that they think encompass uh, this ideal ocean. Uh, And those were developed over the course of the last few years by these 19 executive planning group members who created this framework, but then also a series of uh, regional planning workshops, that they had a planning workshop uh, for every ocean basin, including Antarctica, uh, to feed into the planning process, to get this feedback from the ground up, to think about what is the ocean they need in, you know, the Pacific? What is the ocean they need in the Indian Ocean Basin? How does that differ uh, from one to the other? And so they've really tried to take all of that input and create these seven broad societal outcomes that they think uh capture all of these fine points, but also leave enough room for interpretation to let the decade evolve underneath them. So it's kind of things that we all think about, you know, a clean ocean, a healthy and resilient ocean, a predicted ocean, so where we better understand future and current ocean conditions, a safe ocean where hazards are better understood uh, and can be communicated, a sustainable productive ocean, it's all about food supply and alternative livelihoods and fisheries, a transparent and accessible ocean, which is about uh, helping with ocean data and information and making that more available to more people to help 
make more informed decisions. And the most recent outcome, which is actually my favorite, uh, it was uh, the UN came up with it because they had released a zero draft implementation plan and then gone through comment with all the different member states. And uh, a lot of the comments came back and said, we need a stronger connection between with ocean literacy and trying to make people aware of the role of the ocean in their lives. So the seventh outcome is an inspiring and engaging ocean, which like you can't get a better title than that to help ensure that society understands and values the diverse roles of the ocean system in relation to their lives and the lives of those around them. So thinking about, you know, a decade (laughs) <laughs> that, I know, of course, yeah. <laughs> is a long period of time. You know, I'm reflecting back on 10 years ago. I was a, you know, confused college student. And, uh, you know, now I'm a hopefully slightly less confused adult, but <laughs> just confused about know. different things. I don't, yep. I don't know. Um, you know, is the plan adaptive? Because the world 10 years ago is so different than it is now. And I imagine, you know, especially given the current state of the world, the world 10 years from now is probably something we couldn't even imagine. Um, you know, is this something that's able to be updated over time as new management challenges arise? Uh, you know, and are there opportunities to address those management challenges over? Oh, def- definitely. Yeah, that's the reason why these outcomes are so broad, because they need to adapt with the decade. And what it means to have a healthy and resilient ocean now in 2020 might be totally different in 2025 or 2027 which sounds like fake years to me a little bit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So it's the UN is going to play a guiding and organizing role, but it's really about what the countries want to do. And that's why I think that the way this decade is set up is great because it's setting kind of common global goals, but allowing countries to get there based on their own priorities and interests that, yeah, things like the high seas and things we need to work together for uh, maybe global ocean observation systems that needs international participation. But uh, we can use the decade as a platform to kind of focus on things that the U S has prioritized or things that we think are unique and important uh, for our country. And so the decade is a platform for promoting this work and for increasing partnerships and increasing opportunities to think creatively. And that's what I think is wonderful about it. It allows us to really challenge ourselves and think, how how do we get there? And what does that look like? And we know that we're not gonna have all the answers on day one of next year, that it's a decade of trying, which is an incredible concept. Yeah, I love that. A decade of trying. I feel like it's something that I wanna just span throughout my my entire next decade is just I know right it's my personal my personal motto for the next 10 years (laughs) just try that's all we can ask is everybody just to try uh but you know when you're talking about the the folks that were involved with creating this plan and that it's up to the countries to you know adopt this and engage and interact and go at their own pace Um, Thinking about who is involved in this whole process, something that I would like to note is, you know, I was I was learning a little bit more about this on a webinar that uh, you helped host in conjunction with a bunch of other folks, Ocean Conservancy and um, 
some of your colleagues. And there is an emphasis on encouraging early career professionals and younger people to participate in these initiatives. And I'm wondering if you could touch a little bit more on that, because I would like listeners to know that if you're out there and you're an early career professional, or this sounds interesting to you, that there could be opportunities for you to get involved. Yes. That's one of the biggest uh, pieces of my portfolio of work is helping with youth engagement and early career professional engagement. Because uh, when you say early career, that technically the definition is up to 10 years after your graduate degree. So people who are technically 40, um, and if they graduated their PhD when they were 30, you know, they're still considered early career, which is just the kind of craziness of academia still hoping <laughs> it's putting its talents in all of us. But um, I'm really trying to make sure that both that early career perspective, but also youth engagement is a huge part of the decade because uh, Craig likes to say that he's not going to be the one leading the charge in 10 years. He'll be retired. You know, it's about the people who are coming up, who are going to be the undergrads, the grad students, the postdocs, the new lawyers, the people who are uh, controlling marine shipping, um, people who are dealing with the new ocean energy uh, potential that we have here. Those are the people that are going to be working on and shaping and shifting the decade. So trying to encourage them and excite them and engage them now is so important. Um, so the UN uh, has a specific early career ocean professionals ECOP group uh, that's led by Alfredo Giron and Aaron Satterwaith, uh, our two fantastic uh, colleagues of mine who are working on that. And they're really trying to make sure that early career ocean professionals are represented at the table. And they have been at every regional planning meeting for the decade thus far. They've had ECOP representation. And then this new arena that I'm trying to work with them together is to include, uh, you know, college age and younger that uh, we've seen what youth have been able to do over the past few years, the new platform that they have, the power that they have, the passion that they have is just so inspiring and makes me really hopeful. And so I've been uh, honored to kind of help connect them and to help them figure out how they want to engage in the decade so that they are more educated and more aware and ready to plug in and participate. Yeah. And, you know, just to really put an emphasis on non-UN affiliated people engaging in this, um, will you share just some more about what role do you just, you know, people listening or me or you, well, I guess you technically are very entrenched in this work, but you know, <laughs> like just anybody else, whether you're an early career professional, your youth or you're older, um, how can people get involved in this, pay attention to it, follow along? Where do they go to learn more and what role do they play in making sure that um, this isn't just a proclamation of a decade that goes unnoticed? You know, this is something that we actually rally around and take action to make sure that we are really creating that ocean that we want to see into the future over the next decade. Yeah, I totally understand how, you know, the governance structure and the bigness of the UN can be intimidating. 
Um, and there's a lot of groups out there that are that we've been working and planning with that are trying to make it easier to interact and engage with the UN and with the decade. There's going to be a lot of tiers of involvement. So every project or every kind of action in the name of the decade isn't going to have to be a major national level commitment. Um, so there's going to be opportunities for groups at every level to get involved and to have their initiatives and their passions labeled as decade actions. Uh, the approval process for that is still kind of in flux. We're still technically in the planning period for the decade and the implementation and science plans from the UN perspective have to get approved by the UN General Assembly this fall. Uh, so we'll have a bit more concrete information then. But I want to assure people that every little bit counts. And I'm personally trying to encourage everyone that I talk to to think creatively about what role they and their organization, their group uh, could play in the decade to start thinking about that and organizing your community of, around how can we contribute and what does our piece of this look like? Uh, so to learn more from the UN perspective, uh, they have the website oceandecade.org. Uh, and from a U.S. perspective, uh, the National Academies of Sciences just convened the U.S. National Committee on the decade. Uh, they had their first meeting uh, just a few weeks ago, and they're in the planning process of figuring out how they're going to act as kind of a central body within the U.S. on actions. Um, and they've launched a website which will kind of be a central non governmental organization hub for all things decade in the U.S. So watch that space on the National Academy's website uh, and just look up U.S. National Committee on the Decade. Great. And yeah, we'll be sure to follow along and keep the listeners updated too as things progress um, to if there are any opportunities for people to engage or uh, help inform the plan. Um, and so, you know, to wrap up, I, I like to ask my guests a series of the same questions uh, in order to glean any last insight that I possibly can from our time together. Because um, I see it as my responsibility as host to bring on these really interesting people and bright minds and just ask them all the questions that people are wondering. And um, these last three have, have been really interesting to see the uh, trends or different answers that I get. Um, so some of them, they're, they're fairly broad and uh, I don't expect you to have the answer to all of them, but it's more of your own personal opinion. Uh, starting with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with? I think uh, it's really a lack of environmental and ocean literacy, that it's people not realizing their connection to the environment and to the ocean, uh, that they don't understand the role that the natural world plays in their lives and the essentialness that it plays for their future. And so it's a little more, it's a little more abstract of an answer, but I think that if people understood those connections, they would take the current environmental challenges, all of them that we're facing more seriously. Um, but because we're, we're, we view it through a screen or we view it uh, from afar, we don't personalize it and take it in. And that's, uh, really dangerous because people are desensitized to uh, the damage and they don't know what it means for them. And because I think we all can use some hope right now, what are you hopeful for moving forward? 
working with youth with my within my decade portfolio has been a daily boost of hope. Uh, the up and coming generations are so passionate and so unwilling to stick with the status quo that they're willing to think beyond and challenge. I had a very high school musical moment then uh, <laughs> thinking to stick to the status quo. Um, so they give me hope and talking to people who are doing jobs that I didn't even know existed. I'm always glad when I meet someone, I was like, oh, you're thinking about that problem. You're trying to figure out how to make uh, like ocean energy work, or you're trying to figure out how to make, uh, you know, the food we eat more sustainable. I'm so glad you're thinking about that. And that is just, it's great that there's funding and will out there for those sorts of things. Yeah. And so this last one is a two-part question. They are very similar. Um, So (laughs) it's sort of like, it's like an input-output situation. So what is the best advice that you've ever been given? And then the output is, what advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, yeah. I think the best advice I've ever been given is that your work is not your life. Uh, mentors who've actively encouraged me to enjoy my life outside of work and cultivate a life outside of work. And I think that's especially important for people in the environmental and conservation fields because we get into this field, you know, because we've loved going outdoors and we have a passion for things. And so working in a job where you see things being degraded or you're trying to make regulations to try to make things better, it can be depressing. And working in climate change, that's hard. That's a lot for one person to kind of internalize and take on in your work. And so making sure that you have ways to address that and ways to step away from that and deal with that and have a life outside of your work. And then uh, the advice that I'd give is something that's kind of, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was creepily kind of, it's infected my whole career. (laughs) Not infected, it's a good thing. (laughs) But it's been kind of in the background the whole time I've, been in this field and been working is the power of collaboration that it takes time it takes longer than kind of unilateral decisions and yes it can be onerous and yes you're never going to get everyone to agree um but you'll get so much more done together than apart i love it um taylor thank you so much for joining me today i am really looking forward to sharing this conversation with our listeners and participating in the UN UN Decade of the Ocean. Um, I feel like every time I say UN Decade of the Ocean, I want to say the whole thing. Um, It's important to say the whole thing because that's what's, it's it's such a long title, but I think that second part is the most important part because it's for (laughs) sustainable development. It's for that we're not just have it, it's not just a decade to do science for science sake. It's a decade to sustainably develop our entire world and make sure that people who might not feel like they're involved because, oh, I don't do science, make them find their part in it. Yes, it's a decade for intentional trying. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, this was such a pleasure and I thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to work on this with you further and uh, I love the podcast and the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. And I would also like to thank the listeners. If you like what you heard and want to explore more 
shows, either my shows or shows like this one, you can find the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are very much appreciated. And if you would like to connect with us on social media, we are at Coastal News 365 on Twitter and Instagram and the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook. And you can reach out to me personally on Twitter. I'm at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. It's silly, I know, um, but it's my reality. And I didn't realize I'd be hosting a podcast when I made the name. Um, And it is the same on Instagram, but Yenna has three N's in it. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. Thank you.